On May 28, 2019, the Boston Bruins played Game 2 of the Stanley Cup Finals against the St. Louis Blues. Before the game, the Bruins distributed black and gold playoff towels for the fans to wave during the game and to keep as a souvenir. The towels included the name and logo of one of their business partners and sponsors during the playoff run, Barstool Sports. Barstool Sports is a multi-channel media company with an extremely popular sports and pop culture blog. The day after the game, the Boston Herald published an opinion article which blasted the Bruins' partnership with Barstool Sports because of Barstool's, quote, history of sexual harassment and misogyny. Somerville Mayor Joseph Curtitone got in on the act as well, issuing a statement condemning the partnership because of Barstool's, quote, misogyny, racism, and general right-wing lunacy. Barstool fought back hard against these accusations. Its founder accused Mayor Curtitone of criminal activity. And one of its most prominent personalities, Kirk Minahan, a popular TV host and radio personality, sought to interview Curtitone about these accusations. Mayor Curtitone declined the interview. But Minahan got his Curtitone interview anyway. Just not as Kirk Minahan. Minahan posed as Boston Globe reporter Kevin Cullen and even disguised his voice to make it sound like the well-known Globe reporter. Minahan, as Cullen, asked for Curtitone's permission to record the interview, and Curtitone agreed. Barstool published the interview recording a few days later. Mayor Curtitone then filed a lawsuit against Barstool and Minahan under the Massachusetts Wiretap Act. The Wiretap Act prohibits, quote, secret recordings. A Superior Court judge later dismissed the case because the recording at issue was not secret. Rather, it was fully disclosed and agreed to by Curtitone. Curtitone appealed, and the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court took the appeal on its own initiative. This case pits a very visible local mayor against a very popular media company and shock jock. This is Curtitone versus Barstool Sports. Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at Bernkoff Goodman, which sponsors this podcast. Today, we're looking at a high-profile case between the mayor of a large city just north of Boston and a popular media company and TV and radio personality. With me today is Andy Kaplan, a litigator and trial lawyer at Twohig Kaplan. He's a partner and co-founder of the firm. Andy successfully represented Barstool and Minahan in this case. Welcome, Andy. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the SJC's decision in your client's favor. This decision stemmed from a motion to dismiss in the Superior Court, which, given the standard, is a very difficult motion to win. Now, here, the Wiretap Act prohibits the willful interception of any wire or oral communication. Interception, in turn is defined in the statute as, and I'm going to quote here, 
to secretly hear or secretly record any person other than a person given prior authority by all parties to such communication. The Superior Court first, and then the SJC on appeal, looked at this language, the plain language of the statute, and concluded that in order for the statute to apply, the recording had to be, quote, secret, hidden from the recorded party. Here, because Minahan stated that he was on the record, that he was recording the interview, and that, in fact, Curtitone agreed to the recording, the court found that the secrecy requirement could not be satisfied under these circumstances. But here's the question, Andy. There was clearly an element of secrecy here because Minahan concealed his identity to Curtitone. And therefore, it's really undisputed that he used an element of deception to obtain this interview in the first place. Why wasn't that enough under the statute? So that is the argument that the mayor's attorney, Lenny Keston, made. He argued that since Kurt uh, tricked the mayor, pretended to be Kevin Cullen, Kirk's identity was secret. And that was his main argument. And at oral argument, Justice Kafka picked up on that and pressed my colleague who argued for our side, Aaron Moss, uh, why, why, why isn't the mayor correct that Kirk secretly heard the call? And the answer is because the plain meaning of this statute is it prohibits secret recordings. The fact of the recording is what's secret. It doesn't matter what the identity of the listener is. As long as the fact of your being recorded is known to you, it's not secret and the statute is not violated. And we even had an SJC case pretty much on point where uh, a plaintiff sued for a wiretap violation and claimed that he hadn't consented to the recording and that he, but in that case, he thought the police were recording him and it was actually someone else. And the SJC said, you knew you were being recorded and it doesn't matter that you were confused about who, what, who was recording you. All that matters is, is, the, is the fact that you're being recorded secret. And here, since the mayor alleged Kirk told him he was recording, it wasn't secret, it wasn't a violation. So, so the critical point here is whether the recording is secret or not. And that's, that's sort of evident when you look at the preamble of the wiretap statute, it really says, you know, that it's aimed against, quote, secret recordings. But what's interesting is that unlike several other terms that are specifically identified and defined in this statute, the term secret is actually not defined in the statute. So the court in its analysis sort of went a little bit beyond just the plain meaning. They sort of talked about, well, what's the aim of this statute? They said the aim is against electronic eavesdropping. And so my question to you is, you know, why was this why was this wiretap act passed in the first place? What is it all about? And how did that factor into your litigation strategy and ultimately the court's decision? So originally, the legislative history tells us that the legislature passed the Wiretap Act as an additional law enforcement tool to go after organized crime, to give the police certain wiretapping abilities and to put rules, do's and don'ts around it. But obviously, it has a broader application. Uh, if I were to tap into your phone lines and record your phone calls, I would be violating the statute. 
And I think the SJC recognized that the interest being protected is against the unwitting recording of a phone conversation or, or the unwitting recording of communications. And since that was not what was happening here, the court said this is far afield from what the statute's concerned with, and it's not a violation. I want to talk just a, a, briefly a bit more about the plain language of the statute, because that really was sort of the focal point of, well, actually the Superior Court judge's decision as well as the SJC decision. And what both courts said was there are two elements that have to be satisfied in order to have a wiretap act violation. Number one, as we've been talking about, there's gotta be a secret recording. But number two, the recording um, has to have been, or there has to be a lack of consent by the recorded party. Now, here in this case, the, clearly there was no secret recording. And that, that seems the just and correct decision on many levels. But just in terms of the broader application of this decision, it seems to almost write out the lack of consent issue from the statute. So let me sort of say this a different way. If it's a secret recording, clearly there's not going to be consent because you don't even know that recording's happening. If it's not a secret recording, you clearly are at least implying consent to the recording because if you know it's happening and you continue to talk, uh, you could have walked away. Uh, you could have stopped talking. So at least there is some element of consent involved. If that's the case, hasn't the SJC in this decision effectively written out that consent element from the statute? Yeah, well, there, there, uh, there's pre-existing precedent from the SJC that says when a recording is not secret, the other element of authorization is, is irrelevant. Because in order for there to be a violation, both of those elements must be satisfied. So if either element is not satisfied, there is no violation. Um, you know, uh, to your point, uh, why didn't the legislature just pass a law that says it's illegal to make a secret recording of someone else? Because once it's, if it's secret, um, there can't be authorization, right? You make a good point, but we'd have to ask the legislature why they put the two requirements in there. But the one thing I'd add is, um, for any lawyers in the audience, you know, uh, most lawyers are the average person on the street to the extent they think they know how the wiretap statute works in Massachusetts. Everyone says it's a two-party consent state, right? I need your consent to record you. And everyone's wrong. That's a myth. Because so long as the other person knows they're being recorded, you don't need their permission. Because once you tell them they're being recorded, they can hang up if they want. They don't have to give consent. That's so true, Andy. There's even that 50-state compendium on wiretap statutes that is floating around there on the internet. And you're exactly right. Massachusetts is noted as a two-party consent state. And I agree with you. It just it, it's when you really look at this decision and when you look at the language, that's just simply not the case. So it's a it's a funny, uh, interesting side note about everybody's perception of this law versus how it actually works out. And here's the funny thing about it. The SJC conducted this oral argument largely on Zoom and a bunch of other ones. 
and the SJC and the Zoom was recorded and no one asked anyone's permission to record it, right? <laughs> so if they ruled against us, they basically would have opened themselves up to being sued by every lawyer who participated in an oral argument. And frankly, everyone that uh, uses a Zoom um, without you know, getting consent would be uh, susceptible to being sued, which is why Zoom just has uh, the nice flashing notice recording. And as long as I know it's recorded, you're good. Yeah, that gets that gets into a little bit about the the policy implications of this this decision, which I I do want to come back to, but I do want to get to some of the details that I think the listeners are really going to be interested in. You know, I I listened to you know I found it very interesting that the complaint and even the SJC's decision didn't really delve into the substance of the Minahan Curtitone interview. Um, but I certainly wanted to know what it was. So I listened to it and I watched it and, you know, look, Minahan challenged Curtitone basically, Hey, you're saying this stuff about Barstool. You got to back it up with facts, you know, give us something. What are you basing these allegations on? Give us something. And, you know, more or less Curtitone sort of, you know, he dodged and weaved and, you know, he thought he was talking to a friend. He kind of stuck to his uh, his talking points. At the end of it, I, I was sitting there saying, well, he didn't say anything embarrassing. I mean, you know, he he didn't back up his allegations, but it wasn't, you know, there was nothing salacious in the interview. So the question, Andy, it seems like much ado about nothing. Why did Curtitone even bother filing this lawsuit? Virtue signaling. Politics. He thought that Barstool Sports was a good boogeyman, that he could sue them, the allegedly misogynist, sexist, you know, every name in the book. And he was virtual signaling to, I assume he believes his constituents are liberal and would think that Barstool was bad. And, um, you know, that that's what it was about. So if you if you read read his complaint, as I know you did, the first dozen or so paragraphs just sling mud at Barstool and Dave Portnoy and what bad people they are and what bad things they've supposedly done, having nothing to do with the phone call and the recording. It was about signaling that he's he's on the side of political correctness. And that's why he brought it, in our opinion. Now, I wanna I wanna shift the facts a little bit here. I want to give you a hypothetical so we can kind of get back to, you know, the uh, sort of the implications of of this decision. And so let's assume for purposes of this hypothetical that Kevin Cullen and uh, Curtitone have, you know, longstanding history together, uh, trust, discretion, all that. And let's say before the interview starts, Minahan says something to the effect of, or Minahan as Cullen says something to the effect of, hey, listen, uh, I'm going to record this just to make sure I get it accurate. But, you know, if, if you want to say something off the record, just let me know. Just say off the record. Uh, I'm going to keep recording, but I, I'm only going to do that. I'm not going to publish anything you say off the record. And then I'm going to destroy the recording once I'm done writing my article. Curtitone says something really embarrassing or something salacious, but he, he precedes it by saying, but this is off the record. Minahan releases the recording, you know, three days later. 
under the SJC's reasoning, as I read it, no wiretap act violation. So the question for you, Andy, am I right? Is, is there a violation of the wiretap act here under my hypothetical? And if I, and if I am right and that there's not a violation, is there any cause of action at all? So it's not a wiretap violation for the straightforward reason that when you know you're being recorded, it's not secret and it's not a violation. And um, there may be any number of other common law causes of action one might bring in your hypothetical or that Mayor Curtitoni might have brought. Fraud, misrepresentation, et cetera, you know, invasion of privacy, whatever, whatever. But I suspect the good mayor was operating under the misconception that we're a two-party consent state. And uh, because the consent was con- procured by fraud, he had a good wiretap claim, and he put all his eggs in that basket, and he lost. And so, and, and just to, just to add briefly, um, I could certainly appreciate that there's a public policy argument that one might want to make it illegal for me to call you. In your hypothetical, we might want to make it illegal, but as a fellow attorney, we know. It's not the court's job to rewrite statutes to to fix wrongs. This this law doesn't address your situation. If the legislature thinks that there's a plague on society of people making uh, phony phone calls and tricking people into being recorded, they can pass a new law if they think that that's a big societal ill. I suspect it's not that big of a problem. But but this law doesn't address that. Well, let's let's turn it around a little bit and and talk about. I think the other side of the policy argument, which I think you guys raised very effectively in in your brief, which is this this whole idea of, well, you don't want to, uh, you know, disinhibit or you don't want to uh, potentially uh, punish, uh, you know, the practice of undercover journalism, and you know, basically that, as I take it, is where journalists sort of pose as someone else to get good information on bad actors and disclose these bad acts to the 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 you know the population and that's unquestionably a a benefit to society and so when i read that in your brief i'm thinking okay that's that makes great sense from a policy argument but it reminded me that 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 raises actually another really potentially powerful legal argument that's the First Amendment, the freedom of the press. Now, I know you guys didn't necessarily have to go that route because you won at the motion to dismiss phase, and that was affirmed by the SJC in a thoughtful decision. But did you guys think about the, the First Amendment implications when you were kind of initially strategizing this and sort of mentioning the undercover journalism piece in your your briefs are how, if at all, did the First Amendment factor into your strategy? Well, there's no question that the First Amendment was implicit in our pointing out that, um, you know, recording public officials on matters that are under public discussion that have been covered in the Boston Herald has a First Amendment consideration. And um, my colleagues at Greenberg Glusker um, reached out to the ACLU, and you may have noticed that they wrote us an amicus brief at the states of, at the at the SJC, um, uh, arguing to the court that they should not give an expansive interpretation to to what's illegal under the statute because you're going to be stepping on the First Amendment. You know, journalists and reporters 
gathering information from public officials has a significant First Amendment component, and you don't want to stretch statutes and, and risk trampling on those First Amendment considerations. That's no, that's a good point, and uh, that the ACLU brief I did think was uh, was very persuasive. Um, so, how, Andy, I, I gotta know, how did you get involved in this very exciting and, and very interesting case? I got involved because I'm Kirk Minahan's personal attorney. Uh, if you're a follower of the local sports media scene, and you remember when he used to be one of the most popular radio sports sports talk personalities on WEI, and he had a very public falling out with them, um, he hired me to be his lawyer to help extricate him from that situation, and then ultimately to negotiate his new relationship with Barstool Sports based on my background, both in helping people in employment law situations. And I think he figured out from my social media that I was a listener and I understood the context of his business situation. So I'm his personal lawyer. And in that, in that context, I sort of teamed up with Barstool's lead attorneys out of LA to work on this interesting case. Yeah. I was a, I was an avid EEI devotee and, and just when Minahan left, I, I, I just, uh, I kind of left as well, quite frankly. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that he landed on his feet uh, over at uh, Barstool. So last question for you, Andy, and I ask uh, every guest the same one. Uh, what's what's the teachable moment here? What is What did you learn from this case? Uh, you know, I learned from the case, the actual holding, because I was not a wiretap expert before we did the research. So I learned that uh, Massachusetts is not um, just a two-party consent state. As long as someone knows you're recording them, you're good. It's not a wiretap violation. Andy, congratulations on a tremendous victory. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. That's our show. Check out our show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you are involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic, reach out to me at rstetson at bg-llp.com. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And of course, if you like what you heard, please leave us a positive review. Thanks for listening.